The following sermon, entitled The Commandment Concerning Material Goods, was preached on the morning of March 13, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21. We will read the first 24 verses. And we do so in connection with Lord's Day 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism. 1 Kings 21. This is the inspired and infallible Word of our God. It came to pass that after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thy heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in the city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. And set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. And the men of the city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him, And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned, and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. 
And it came to pass, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. thine. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee and will take away thy posterity and will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel. And will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord saying, the dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat. And him that dieth in the field, shall the fowls of the air eat. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage in Scripture and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 42. This is found in the back of our song books on page 23. After all of the songs... We have our various confessions. And this morning we consider Lord's Day 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism. In our church we have the practice of using the Heidelberg Catechism as a guide, as a faithful summary of God's Word. And we preach through it to ensure that we are regularly hearing the whole counsel of God. So we're up to Lord's Day 42 which treats the Eighth Commandment being, Thou shalt not steal. What does God require in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate, but He comprehends under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right, as by unjust weights, L's, measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury, or by any other way forbidden by God, as also all covetousness, all abuse and waste of gifts. But what doth God require in this commandment? That I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may, and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others, Further also that I faithfully labor so that I may be able to relieve the needy. In the Eighth Commandment, God gives us instruction concerning our material goods and our physical possessions. That's what, in part, sets this commandment apart from the others and makes it distinct, especially the others in the Second table of the law for in the fifth commandment God gave instruction concerning 
the position of our neighbor and the authority that our neighbor has. In the Sixth Commandment, God gave instruction concerning the life and the person of our neighbor. In the Seventh Commandment, God gave instruction concerning the physical bodies of our neighbor. And as we'll see, the Lord willing, next week, in the Ninth Commandment, God gives instruction concerning the name and the reputation of our neighbor. Here in the Eighth Commandment, the focus is on the physical possessions, the material goods of the neighbor. And that's clear from the commandment itself. Thou shalt not steal. And what's the primary thing that we would take to ourselves from our neighbor unlawfully? It's his or her physical goods and material possessions. So that's what's in view here in this Eighth Commandment. And importantly, there's instruction here concerning these matters from a very general point of view. In other words, though the focus is indeed on my neighbor's possessions, his goods, nevertheless, there's also instruction concerning the things that God gives to us. He teaches us how we are to obtain these things and how we are to use the various possessions He's given to us. And all of this is founded upon the fundamental truth that really everything in this world belongs to our God. He possesses everything. And it's exactly because all things belong to God that on the one hand, He says, thou shalt not steal, take your neighbor's goods. And on the other hand, He calls us to be good stewards of the things that He has given to us. And so with that in mind that we consider the Eighth Commandment this morning and the Catechism's exposition of it in Lord's Day 42, using as our theme the commandment concerning material goods. The commandment concerning material goods. First, we'll look at the stealing that's forbidden. Second, at the stewardship that's required of us. And then third, the salvation accomplished for us in light of this Eighth Commandment. So first of all, the stealing forbidden. And as I just alluded to, this commandment is built on the basic principle, the underlying truth, that God owns everything and distributes the things of this earth to the people of it. The God owns everything is clearly set forth in Scripture. For example, in Psalm 24, verse 1, we read, "...the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein." So, this physical creation belongs to God as well as everything inside of it. All the fullness of it. Even every creature upon it. It all belongs to God. But now God, according to His will and providence, takes the goods of this earth and He distributes them. He divides them up so that we can think of it as though God by His hand giving to the inhabitants of this earth a different allotment, a different portion of it. For when God created this earth, He did so with a view to building a a habitat for man. When we go through the various creation days, we're seeing that God is making for man everything that He will need to live. And then in harmony with that, God takes those physical goods and divides them up. He gives to some much. He gives to others relatively little. 
But importantly, all of this is done according to His will. And standing behind that will is His infinite wisdom. God knows the right amount to give to each individual who lives on this earth. And we have an illustration of this truth of God possessing it, but then dividing it up. We have an illustration of that when we consider the fact that Israel received as their inheritance the land of Canaan. When Israel came into the land of Canaan, conquered the inhabitants thereof, God took the land as a whole and divided it up by lot among the various tribes and clans and families so that every family received some portion of land. And this is exactly what Naboth had in mind when he firmly declined King Ahab's offer to buy his vineyard. Ahab came to him saying, I want to buy your vineyard. And Naboth said, no. Why not? Well, he tells us in verse 3 of the chapter that we read, and Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And now, as we'll see later on in the sermon, Naboth clearly understands the spiritual significance, the spiritual meaning of that land. This was his inheritance. But nevertheless, we can still take that idea of God dividing the land among the people of Israel and see that that illustrates the truth that we're setting forth. God owns everything and distributes it according to His will. And it's exactly for that reason that God comes to us in the 8th commandment and says, Thou shalt not steal. The 8th commandment is built on this foundational truth. For this foundational truth is what explains the positive aspect of the 8th commandment with regard to our neighbor's good from a positive point of view. We're to help the neighbor keep his goods. That comes out in the Heidelberg Catechism that this is included in this commandment. In question and answer 111, we read, but what doth God require in this commandment? The answer, that I promote the advantage of my neighbor. In every instance, I can or may and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. We're to help the neighbor improve and protect his property and his income. So that if we see our neighbor's ox or donkey going astray, we grab a hold of that animal and we bring it back according to the Old Testament law. If we see our neighbor's be struggling under some burden, we go to help that neighbor. Another Old Testament civil law, all pointing to the truth that we're to help the neighbor keep his goods. Why? Because we recognize that God Himself was the one who allotted those specific goods to that specific neighbor. And because God gave them to Him, well, we recognize that they now belong to this individual and we're going to help that person maintain what God has given to him. The same holds true from the negative point of view. The foundational truth explains the positive. Help the neighbor keep what God has given to him. But then negatively, thou shalt not steal because stealing, to use the language of the catechism, is appropriating our neighbor's goods to ourselves in an unlawful manner. 
It's the language we find in Lord's Day 42, right in the middle. It's listing the various ways that we would go about doing this, but it speaks of tricks and devices whereby we design, and here's really the definition of what it means to steal, to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor. And in the context, it's clear it's talking about doing this in an unlawful manner. And that's forbidden. Because when we do that, really what we're doing is setting aside God's own dispensation of things. In essence, when we steal, what we're saying to God is, you messed up when you divided up the goods of this world. What you gave to my neighbor, you should have given to me. And if you will not give it to me, then I will simply take it for myself. When we steal, we're trying to overthrow God's will. We're trying to set aside His providential work of distributing the goods of this earth. That's what makes stealing sinful. And now before we move on, it's important that we recognize that there are many different ways in which we can be guilty of this sin of stealing. And that's what especially what the catechism has to teach us in question answer 110. Question answer 110, we read, what doth God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? And the answer is, God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate, but comprehends under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right, as by unjust weights, L's, measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, and usury, or any other way forbidden by God. The catechism is teaching us there's many different ways of stealing, and really we can put them into three main categories. First, we can be guilty of this when we take our neighbor's goods by force and violence. That's what the catechism has a view when it speaks of those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate. It's talking about the use of violence or the threat of violence to take the neighbor's goods. And that's exactly what Jezebel did when she stole Naboth's vineyard. She had him killed so that her husband could take possession of that vineyard. She used force, violence to steal. That's one way that one can break this commandment. Another, secondly, is taking our neighbor's goods by deceit or fraud. And that's what the catechism is emphasizing when it talks about wicked tricks and devices. It talks about taking our neighbor's goods under the appearance of right. It, it mentions unjust weights, L's, and L's a, a measurement for textiles, for fabrics. Uh, measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury, that's unreasonably high interest rates, or by any other way forbidden by God. And while it's some of these examples might seem a bit outdated to us. It's not as though we cannot think of similar examples still today. The world is full of different scams and different schemes whereby people are trying to steal from one another. And 
We could give a a long, long list of different examples. We're not going to take the time to do so. But I trust you would agree this is a sin that's still very prevalent today. So we can steal by force and violence. We can steal by deceit and fraud. And third, we can steal by neglect and laziness. Neglect and laziness, and especially in the workplace when we fail to perform the duties that we owe to another. Calvin wrote in this respect, quote, He who does not carry out what he owes to others according to the responsibility of his own calling both withholds and appropriates what is another's. End quote. And Calvin is right. Included in this commandment, therefore, is all laziness in the workplace. Wasting time instead of working diligently. It's a form of stealing. And all such forms of stealing are forbidden when God says to us, Thou shalt not steal. But yet, man steals anyway. And we too are inclined toward this same sin on account of the depravity of our old nature. And the question becomes, why? What's so appealing about this sin? What's, the, what's enticing about it? What's the bait that the devil holds forth to tempt us to sin? Well, when tempting us to commit this sin, the devil makes use of two lies. Two main lies. First, he uses the lie of materialism. Materialism is the sin of viewing the goods of this earth, physical possessions, as being more important than God God Himself. And that's what the devil wants us to believe. The devil wants us to think that happiness is found in things. The devil wants us, in essence, to make an idol out of the goods of this earth and believe the lie that satisfaction and safety are found in these things. And the more we accumulate, well, the, the happier we'll be then. And when we give in to this lie, our goal in life simply becomes to amass all sorts of wealth and all sorts of possessions to ourself. That's the lie of materialism. And Ahab clearly believed that lie. Materialism was the the heart sin that we see in Ahab when we read this history in 1 Kings 21. And we can say that confidently in light of how he responds to Naboth's refusal to accept his offer. What does he do? He pouts about it. Notice that in verse 4 of the chapter we read. And Ahab came into his house heavy heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he, Ahab, laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. Ahab threw a fit. And what stands behind that is clearly he had given in to the live materialism. He was believing the notion that happiness is found in having that vineyard next door and turning it into a, a garden of herbs. 
But at that point, he had not yet stolen it. Because he had not yet given in to the second lie. He will. But you need both, really. And the devil knows that. So not only does he use the lie of materialism, secondly, he uses the lie of entitlement. Entitlement being the sinful thinking that I have a right to whatever I really want. And that again is what the devil wants us to believe. It's what the devil wanted Eve to believe in the beginning. The devil came to Eve to convince her, look, God's really holding out on you. There's something good here that you ought to have, Eve. And God is just being cruel by withholding from you this good thing. Just take it, Eve. And so it is with us. He wants us to convince us, if I really want something, then I really ought to have it. I deserve it. And we see that especially in Jezebel in this history. Say that in light of verse 7. This is after Jezebel notes her husband's demeanor. She says, and finds out why, Jezebel says in verse 7, "...dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite." Essentially what Jezebel is saying to her husband here is, Ahab, your king. And don't you know that kings get what they want? That's a part of being a king. You have the right to just take it. You're above the law, my husband. I'll get you that vineyard because we have the right to just take what we want to ourselves. That's entitlement. And it's when we believe these lies that we're going to be guilty of this sin. These are the heart sins that stand behind it. And while they're relatively easy to recognize in others, in Ahab and Jezebel, the question for us is, can we recognize these same sins in ourselves? Have you come to believe the lie of the devil? That happiness is found in things? That physical goods, material possessions are more important than life with Him? Have you come to believe the lie that you have a right to whatever you want and you really should just take it to yourself regardless of whether or not God has given it to you? Insofar as we have come to believe these lies, insofar as we find this materialism and this entitlement in our own hearts, we too are guilty of this same sin. And that means we need to recognize the lies of the devil. We need to be ready to respond to the devil when he comes to us, tempting us in these ways. We need to have answers. And when the devil comes to us with that lie of materialism, the answer that we have to say to the devil is that no amount of earthly goods will ever satisfy the soul. That's how we speak back to the devil. We come to him with the, the Word of God. The Word of Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? We say to the devil, 
No amount of gold and silver can bring happiness. Not even the finest vineyard in all the world is going to satisfy my soul. Because the one and only thing that can is my Savior Jesus Christ. And the life that I now have with my God on account of His saving work, it's enjoying sweet covenantal communion with Him that brings me true joy, true happiness. And you recognize Naboth understood all this. Naboth, here's an example to us of one whose heart was not gripped with the sin of materialism. Because if it were, he would have taken the deal. This is a good offer from an earthly point of view, from man's point of view. What did Ahab offer him? Verse 2 of the chapter, I will give thee a better vineyard than it, or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. If Naboth was consumed with materialism, he would have taken the deal, but he was not. His focus was on the spiritual. His focus was on what that land represented, what it pointed us to. He understood this is my inheritance. God has given me this land not just as a piece of ordinary land, but this is the land that God has given to us that's a, a picture of life with a picture of heavenly life with him. This is the land wherein God Himself dwells and I can dwell with Him here. He understood what mattered most was the spiritual, not the physical. And we must do the same. That's how we respond to the lie of materialism and the devil's temptation of us. With regard to that lie of entitlement, well, there we go back to the fundamental theology that we began with. In the first point, God owns everything. And God distributes the goods of this earth according to His will. It's not my prerogative. I don't have the, the sovereign right to just take something. No, that belongs to God. It all belongs to Him. And I'm not going to challenge, I'm not going to try to overthrow His perfect distribution of the goods of this earth. So we do have answers to the lie, lies of the devil when he comes tempting us to go against the Eighth Commandment. What is more, in battling against this temptation, we also must recognize the hook. And we respond to the devil saying, you might try to hide it with your bait, but I understand there's very real consequences for this sin. Those consequences may well include temporal, earthly consequences, whether it's some fine, whether it's jail time, or maybe even suffering to be stolen from yourself. Something Luther pointed out in his exposition of this Eighth Commandment in his larger catechism. Luther wrote, quote, No matter how much you steal, be certain that twice as much will be stolen from you. Anyone who robs and takes things by violence and dishonesty must put up with someone else 
who plays the same game. Because everyone robs and steals from everyone else, God has mastered the art of punishing one thief by means of another. End quote. Luther was right in what he said there. That can be a form of punishment. But yet we recognize that's not the main thing, is it? The main consequences are not the earthly, the temporal consequences. But the main punishment is death. And that too comes out in this history. Because that's God's Word to Ahab and Jezebel through the prophet Elijah. God sends Elijah to speak to Ahab as he's on his way to his new vineyard. And this is the message that he has. Verse 19, Hast thou killed and also take possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine, Ahab. Verse 21, same thing. I will bring evil upon thee and will take away thy posterity and will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel. Verse 23, And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Ahab's entire family would be destroyed. They would all be put to death and his line would be cut off. And we recognize that that in and of itself was punishment. But what is worse, it pointed, what is more, it pointed to a far worse punishment, namely spiritual death. Separation from God being cut off in that sense of the word. That's the punishment, and that's a warning for all those who are inclined to walk in this sin impenitently. But while the prospect of punishment is primarily a warning, is it not also a comfort? Is it not also a comfort in light of the fact that many times we are the ones who are wronged in this way? Because that is a part of living in this fallen world surrounded by sinful man. As Christians, we need to expect that we're going to be wronged in many different ways. That we're going to be stolen from at times. And God even calls us to suffer such wrong rather than trying to respond in turn. Trying to retaliate against those who would do us such wrong. For example, Calvin wrote in this respect, quote, but if we have to deal with faithless and dishonest men, let us be prepared to give up something of our own rather than to contend with them, end quote. And the point that we're getting at is what happens here to Naboth is not entirely unique. This is not a rarity. But this is in fact the norm. Not just among the inhabitants of this earth altogether, but especially for Christians. We need to expect that we're going to be wronged in different ways. That we're going to be sinned against. But the comfort is the truth of God's justice. 
And that's what stands out here in this passage of Scripture. It sure seems like Ahab and Jezebel get away with everything. When Jezebel sends out her letters, everyone follows suit and there appears to be no consequences whatsoever for these two on account of their sin. But the rest of the chapter tells us otherwise. God sees this sin. And God would punish Ahab and Jezebel for their sin. And it's knowing that that makes us willing to suffer the wrongdoing that others commit against us. We're to recognize the truth that vengeance belongs to the Lord. We're to take comfort in the truth of Luke 18, verse 7, where we read, And shall not God avenge His own elect, which cry day and night unto Him, though He bear long with them? That is, when we cry out unto God, He will hear and answer that cry. And again, to borrow from Luther, God will take matters into God's own hands. We don't have to try to take matters into our own hands because we trust our God will indeed show forth His justice. So there is comfort here in this history. But the main thing that we've been considering this first point is God's Word to all of us. Thou shalt not steal. All stealing is forbidden. But having explained that, we recognize that's not the whole of the commandment because there's more. Because not only does God forbid stealing the neighbor's goods, He also requires of us stewardship. That brings us to the stewardship that is required. And here, we come more to the positive aspect of the law. We've considered some of the positive in the first point with regards to our neighbor's goods, helping him keep his goods. But now really we shift focus to our own goods. Because when God takes the goods of this earth and as it were by His hand, divides them up to each one of us, well, we all recognize He's given certain physical possessions and material goods to us. And having received these things from the hand of our God, we recognize there's a calling that comes along with that. And that calling is really fourfold. There are four things we need to talk about in this second point. What, is this, what does God require of us regarding our own goods? Well, first of all, that we obtain them lawfully and honestly. And the heart of that is by working diligently for them. That's what the Catechism teaches us in question and answer 111. After talking about the calling to promote the advantage of our neighbor, it says further also that I faithfully labor. I faithfully labor. And this is the calling because most often, ordinarily, God does not take the goods of this earth and simply drop them into our lap. It's not how He divides things up, but instead God requires that we work for them. That we cultivate the ground so that it might bring forth fruit or that we earn a living, earn the financial means so that we can purchase the goods that we stand in need of. Now to be sure, all the labor we can possibly 
form is altogether useless unless the Lord blesses that work, unless God is the one who causes it to prosper. But nevertheless, the point that we're making is the ordinary way in which God gives to us the things we need is in the way of us working for them. And this then is our calling. Rather than trying to obtain them unlawfully, God would have us obtain them in a lawful manner. And thus, we have the calling to work diligently. And that falls. That calling comes especially to those who are heads of the home. We have the calling to provide for their families. God tells us to work diligently, not to puff up our pride and prove I'm such a better worker than all these lazy people around me. Nor do we work diligently simply for the purpose of self-advancement so that I can constantly be getting ahead in life. But remember, this is in the second table of the law. The duties we owe to our neighbor. We're to labor diligently out of love for the neighbor. Out of love for my employee or for my customer, for whomever I am working. And we're to labor out of love for the family that God has given to us in order that we might provide for them. That first of all is what God requires of us that we obtain the goods of this earth by lawful and honest means, working diligently. Second, God requires of us stewardship of the things He has given to us. And that comes out in the Catechism when in question answer 110, it forbids all abuse and waste of gifts. That's the very end of question answer 110. It says, last line, under what God forbids, all abuse and waste of gifts. So it's not just in stealing from another that I can become guilty of sins against the Eighth Commandment, but I can also become guilty of it by misusing the gifts that God has given to us. For when God gives us the goods of this earth, His purpose is not that I can now do whatever I want with it. It's for my pleasure and for my happiness. No. But when God gives us these things, the reality is He never fully relinquishes ownership of them. They still ultimately belong to Him. And the expectation then is that we are to take the things that God has given us and use them to serve our God. We're to take them and use them for the glory of His name. That means insofar as we refuse to do that, insofar as we abuse these gifts, insofar as we waste them, we're not glorifying God. So God forbids the abuse and waste of gifts, which means positively He requires stewardship of us. And that stewardship, in light of what we just said, is more than taking care of the things that we have. It's more than being frugal from a financial point of view. That's included. But ultimately, this stewardship is taking everything we have and pressing it into the service of our God. Using it to advance the kingdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's stewardship. And that's what God requires in the second place. Third, regarding the goods that God has given to us, He requires that we be content 
with what we have. Again, this comes out in the Catechism when in question answer 110, it forbids all covetousness. Covetousness being any sinful desire and longing for something that my neighbor has. Not just something in general, but my neighbor's thing. And really, it's the fact that my neighbor has it and I do not have it that really makes me want to have it all the more. That's covetousness. It's covetousness that we see in our children when all of a sudden one child wants a toy that previously they were oblivious to, but now they want it because their brother or sister has picked it up and seems to be having an awfully good time with it. That's covetousness. And while it's easy for us to recognize that in our children, let's not imagine that we are free of such covetousness. That's in our hearts too. We want what the neighbor has. Such covetousness is forbidden. As Calvin said, we are forbidden to even pant after the possessions of others. Instead, we're to be content. That's the positive. Contentment is the exact opposite of that covetousness. That's clear from Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your conversation, that is your walk of life, be without covetousness and be content with such things you have. Covetousness is a sinful desire for what my neighbor has, whereas contentment is being satisfied with what God has given to me. Covetousness is saying, as Jacob said to his brother Esau, the Lord hath dealt graciously with me. I have enough. And what enables us to be content is recognizing that foundational truth we started with. God gave these things to me in His wisdom. He knows what's best for me. He knows that if I was given more, I I would make an idol out of it all. He knows if I was given less, then I'd be more inclined to steal. It was in His wisdom that He gave me the things that I have. No more, no less. And therefore, I will be content with what He has. That in the third place is what God requires of us. First, that we obtain the goods of this earth lawfully, honestly, working diligently for them. Second, that we be good stewards of the things that God has given to us. Third, that we're content with what we have. And fourth and finally, that we take of the goods we've been given and give some to the poor and needy. And that too is mentioned here in this Lord's Day. The end of question answer 111, further also that I faithfully labor so that, here's part of the purpose for why we are to labor, that I may be able to relieve the needy. And the catechism is clearly drawing from Scripture here. It's drawing from passages such as Ephesians 4, verse 28, where we read, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the things which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. So we're to give to the poor and needy. And we're to give ultimately out of love for Jesus Christ. For as Proverbs 19, verse 17 teaches us, 
He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord. When we have pity on the poor, when we give to them in their need, ultimately we're showing love for our Savior Jesus Christ. And what is more, it's love for the brother. Love for the brethren that we're providing them with their material needs. But in doing so, really, to a certain degree, we're helping them out spiritually as well. Because when we provide for the poor and needy, what we're doing is helping to remove the temptation to use those unlawful means to resort to stealing. And also, when we give to the brother in need, that brother now tastes in a tangible way the mercy of Christ for poor and needy sinners. And that, you may be sure, is only going to motivate him to live a life of obedience unto his God. So those four things are what God requires of us. And we now want to serve God in this way on account of the salvation that our Savior has accomplished for us. That brings us to the last thing we need to consider this morning. For the purposes of this sermon, it's helpful to see that Scripture itself puts our salvation in terms that relate to the Eighth Commandment and to the principles that undergird the Eighth Commandment. Scripture does this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. All of this is in the context of giving. Paul spends two chapters, 8 and 9, really talking about giving. And right in the heart of that, we read 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. It's talking about the grace of Jesus Christ and putting it in terms that relate to the Eighth Commandment. It reminds us, this verse does, that our Savior was rich. Though He was rich. In what sense? Well, the Scriptures tell us that all things were made by Him and for Him. That's Colossians 1, verse 16. The Scriptures tell us in Hebrews 1, verse 2 that He's been appointed heir of all things. And it's in light of this that Jesus Himself was able to say in John 16, verse 15, all things that the Father hath have been given unto Me. Jesus Christ is the One who owns everything. That's a part of His rich of part of what makes him so rich. But there's more to it. Because he's rich on account of his perfections. All the attributes that make him God are part of this richness that we're talking about here. He's rich on account of his majesty. He's the exalted God of heaven and earth. He's rich on account of his privilege. He enjoys perfect covenantal fellowship within the triune God. But though he was rich, says 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, he became poor. Poor. 
And now perhaps you could include under his poverty, his poverty from an earthly point of view. The fact that he was born into a poor family. As evidenced by the fact that when his family, his parents brought him to Jerusalem to present him, they did not bring as a sacrifice a lamb. They brought two turtle doves. You might also include Jesus' own poverty during his earthly ministry, so that he told one man who said, I'm going to follow you, while the foxes have their holes where they can lay, the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. So yes, from a certain point of view, he was poor materially and physically, but that's not the main thing here or even necessarily a part of what 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 is getting at regarding his poverty. Nor is his poverty the incarnation by itself. And we need to say that because there are many who interpret this passage that way. What does it mean he became poor? Well, he became a man. Well, that's not quite right either. Because if you think about it, he's still incarnate in his glorified state, but there is no sense in which he is still poor as the exalted God of heaven and earth. So it's not his incarnation as such, it's not the incarnation by itself that explains the poverty. So what is it? Christ became poor when he entered into the state of humiliation. That's the explanation. He became poor in the sense that He set aside the constant use of those divine attributes. He didn't set them aside altogether. He still possesses them. But He relinquished the constant use of them. He became poor in the sense that He he came down from that place of glory and bliss and entered into this fallen, sin-cursed world. His poverty is that He took upon Himself our sins. He took upon Himself the guilt and the shame that we have on account of our sinfulness. And He bore those sins all of His life long. His poverty is that He was willing to suffer, to be humiliated, to to become a reproach unto men. His poverty was His willingness to suffer the wrath of God on account of our sin. So that if you want to see Christ's poverty on display, you look at the cross. You look at the cross and see your Savior stripped of all of His clothes. Bleeding on account of the scourged back, the Thorns pressed into his head, the nails driven through his arms, his palms. You see his poverty when you see him suffer the wrath of God during those three hours of darkness. He was rich, but yet he became poor. Why? For your sake. 
That's the language of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For ye know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that ye, ye through His poverty might be rich. He did this for us. He did this so that we who were poor, poor in the sense of poor, destitute sinners, destined to eternal punishment, might instead be made rich. Rich with the blessings of salvation. Rich as those who now have the right to an everlasting inheritance and life with God for all eternity. Rich on account of the privileges we enjoy of having life with God, enjoying sweet covenantal communion with Him. And we have that exactly because of His saving work. It says in the text, yet for your sakes He became poor that ye through His poverty, that is, by means of His poverty, here's the basis. He merited it. He earned it. Not by performing some spectacular feat, but by allowing Himself to become poor. By giving His life at the cross of Calvary. You understand what that salvation means for us then. Because of the truth set forth in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, means there's forgiveness for our sins. Beloved, we do need forgiveness. Not just for our sins in general, but for our sins against the Eighth Commandment. And it needs to be said because perhaps during the course of the sermon, as we brought in the narrative between Ahab and Naboth, likely we were all identifying with Naboth. And from a certain point of view, that's right and accurate. But the reality is we also need to identify with Ahab and Jezebel. Because we too are guilty of the same sins. Even if our hands have refrained from shoplifting or some other form of stealing, we all recognize the sinfulness of our own hearts. But the good news for thieves is that there's forgiveness. And the proof for that is another historical example. Look at Matthew. Look at Zacchaeus. Those men were publicans and everyone hated them. Why? Because they used their position to take advantage of the neighbor. They were using their position to steal. But yet they found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so too there is forgiveness for us. But not only forgiveness, there's righteousness in Christ. There's righteousness in Him because He kept this commandment perfectly. And consider for a moment what that means. Not only does it mean that He never once stole from anyone, but it means never once did the heart sins of materialism or entitlement take place, take root in His heart. His obedience does not only mean that 
He labored diligently and faithfully as a carpenter in all those years before His ministry. But His obedience is highlighted in His willingness to become poor though He was rich. To give rather than to take. If there's any man... Let me back up. There's only one man about whom it can be said to use the language of the catechism, that he promoted the advantage of his neighbor in every instance he could. That's Christ. He kept this commandment and all the others perfectly. And that's the obedience, that's the righteousness that's imputed to us by faith. That then is our standing before God. This is what makes us right with our God. This is the basis for our justification. So we look to Christ for forgiveness. We look to Christ for our righteousness. We look to Christ also for the strength to keep this commandment. Because it's the Gospel that will drive us to obey this Word of our God. It's the Gospel that enables us to say no to the sin of materialism. Because I recognize whatever this world has to offer, it's all It's all worthless in comparison to the salvation that I have in Jesus Christ. And the reality is I've been made an heir of the new heavens and the new earth. I I can set my hope on that. I don't need the things of this life. It's the Gospel that makes us willing to say no to the sin of entitlement because we recognize I don't have the right to this or that or whatever I want. Because everything's been given to my Savior. He has the right as the one who accomplished our salvation. It's all been given to Him. And it's knowing then that, knowing that then, that also propels our obedience to the other aspects of this commandment. It's the gospel that makes us willing to work diligently out of thankfulness for our Savior's work on our behalf. It's the gospel that makes us good stewards of all the things we've been given exactly because they now belong to my Savior. And I want to take everything He's given to me and press it into the service of my Lord and my Master. It's the Gospel. makes us content with what we have. Again, recognizing I have Christ. I have what truly matters. Even if I have nothing in this life. And it's the Gospel that makes us willing to give for as those who have tasted Christ's mercy to us, we now want to show that mercy to others. So may God use this Word. May He use the Gospel of our salvation in Jesus Christ to spur us on in a life of thankful obedience unto Him. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for this Word. Apply it to our hearts and cause it to bear fruit in our lives. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.